Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The American novelist Alma Katsu spent 35 years as an intelligence analyst for the U.S. government. Today, though, after six acclaimed novels, she's known as the Queen of Disasters. In her historical fiction, she takes real events and reimagines them, introducing supernatural elements. Alma Katsu's new novel, The Deep, gives an eerie psychological twist to one of the world's most famous tragedies, the sinking of the Titanic and the fate of its sister ship, the Britannic. The Deep begins with its main character, Anne Hebley, an Irish maid on the Titanic, surviving the sinking of the ship. For a moment, the falling feels like something else entirely, like a brief, wild glimpse of freedom. But the surface comes too soon, shattering against her skin, a pane of glass, knocking the air from her lungs. Or perhaps it is she who has shattered. She is no longer herself, no longer a single person, but divided and adrift in the darkness. The burn in her lungs is too unbearable. Her mind begins to soften to make room for the pain. Strange thoughts come to her through the cold. Here, there is no beauty. This much is an unexpected relief. But the body wants what it wants. Please, it begs. Her body begins to fight. Her face seeks the sparse starlight above, already so far away. Someone once told her that the stars were merely sewing pins, holding the black sky up so that it did not come down on the world and suffocate it. Her brief calm gives way to panic. A powerful, unstoppable desire possesses her. It isn't life calling to her, demanding another chance, but love. We all deserve a second chance. The thought seems to arise, not from within her, but around her, even as the currents pull her deeper, as a frigid fog entangles her mind. The surface is unfathomably high now, untouchable. The cold is everywhere, pushing, begging to be let in. I can give you another chance, the waters seem to say. I can make all of this go away if you let me. It is a promise. The waves are no longer pulling her down, but holding her in their arms, waiting for her response. She opens her mouth at last. Water floods in, forming the answer. In a previous novel, The Hunger, Alma Katsu reimagined the Donner Party, the true story of 90 Americans who faced a series of disasters while heading west for California. Only 50 of them survived. In this edition of Historical Fiction, History Hits, Rob Weinberg has been talking to Alma Katsu about the Titanic, the Donner Party, and how real-life tragedies can be turned into supernatural fiction. This is Historical Fiction. Alma Katsu, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here today. Can you tell us, firstly, what The Deep is about? So I guess the short version is to say that it's a reimagining of the sinking of the Titanic 
and its sister ship, the Britannic, with a sort of supernatural twist to it. The main story is about one of the stewardesses on the Titanic, Annie Hebley, a poor Irish woman who gets a job as a stewardess and it really sort of expands her world. And She meets all the rich and famous people that we've heard about, like the Astors. But she finds right away that she's uh, mysteriously drawn to this one passenger, a young man by the name of Mark Fletcher, and his infant daughter, Andine. Well, shortly after they meet, some strange happenings start taking place on the Titanic. But before they can figure out what is going on, the fateful night that we all know about occurs and the ship sinks. But that's not the end of the story. So four years later, Annie is a nurse on the Britannic, the sister ship, which has been converted to a hospital ship. And she's on the ship when they bring this patient aboard, an uh, unconscious patient, and it's Mark Fletcher. She thought he had died on the Titanic four years earlier, but once they're reunited, the supernatural happenings start again, and it really forces Annie to come to terms with what her role is in both of these terrible tragedies. The sinking of the Titanic's been told many times before. There's really quite an industry around it. Why did you feel compelled to use it as the basis of your novel? Well, you know, for that very reason, I was sort of reluctant to do a story about the Titanic, you know, something that's so famous. People have already heard so many stories. They've sort of already made their mind up about it. You know, I've been called the queen of disasters after the horror, but I really come by that name honestly because when I worked in the intelligence business and for the Defense Department for a long time, I ran a lot of crisis response actions for disasters, humanitarian disasters, man-made disasters. So I sort of feel like I know my disasters. And, you know, I just found the Titanic to be fascinating. It's a little daunting, as I said, because it's so well known. But what really drew me into it was when I learned about the Britannic, because I think like a lot of people, I didn't know there was even a sister ship. I mean, Titanic buffs, of course, know all about the ships, but your average person doesn't. And uh, my husband was actually watching a documentary on one of the expeditions to the wreckage. And I just had to watch that. And as we were watching it, they had mentioned that there was a woman who survived both sinkings. And right then and there, without even knowing what her story was, I knew that it had the makings for, you know, a great piece of drama. So tell us a bit about the Britannic. Was it then deployed during the First World War as a hospital ship? Yes, it was. And, you know, I've come to think of the Britannic as sort of like Lady Sylvia on Downton Abbey. <laughs> you know, the dutiful daughter. You've got the more glamorous older sisters like the Titanic, who, you know, is like a debutante launched into society. She's all flash and glitter. But then you have, you know, this very dutiful daughter who wants to fulfill her obligation to her country and to her fellow men. Well, I guess it's a um, foible of a writer to be so imaginative <laughs> with inanimate objects. But I can't help but think of the Britannic that way. She never got to fulfill her function as an ocean liner. She was pressed into service from the very beginning, refitted. And, you know, they did a couple runs. They were mostly supporting the campaign in the Dardanelles, which was terribly bloody. But then the fighting flared up again, so it ended up doing a few more voyages until its unfortunate last voyage, the sixth voyage, which I highlight in the book. In your book, The Deep, there are mysterious disappearances and sudden deaths on the Titanic before it even hits the iceberg. You've created this very eerie atmospheric mood from the outset. 
Was there anything you came across in your research that suggested that such a feeling existed on board among some of the passengers before the big event that we all know about? Okay, I'll be honest with you, no. But <laughs> I kind of wonder if this is just not my turn of mind, you know. Um, first of all, it does seem like for just about any big hotel or large ship or anything like that, there tends to be these supernatural stories and fantasies that surround these things almost from the beginning. You know, my husband, for some reason, loves to watch ghost hunter type programs. So for years, we've been watching all of them and it never fails to amaze me. I mean, sure, a lot of them were constructed on an Indian burial site or something like that, but a lot of them really have no authentic you know, myth like this attached to it. So you think of the Titanic, even though it's a brand new ship, I'm absolutely sure that there were probably people walking around the ship claiming to have seen ghosts or specters or that sort of thing. I grew up in what I like to call the spookiest town in New England. And believe me, there's a lot of towns vying for that title. And I swear every square foot of that town had some kind of strange supernatural myth attached to it. So again, I do think that's probably sort of the way my mind goes, but it was easy for me to imagine people sort of buzzing with various rumors that may have all just originated in their heads as they were on the ship. But it was, of course, a period where there was a great interest in spiritualism and seances, and you've even got the journalist W.T. Stead on board, who was a famous spiritualist. What was it about his character, for example, that lent itself to appearing in a fictional version? Well, you know, um, knowing that there was going to be a supernatural element to the book, as I was doing the research, I was looking for characters, you know, that we could use to highlight that aspect. And so when I saw Stead, I was just overjoyed. So first of all, I have to say as an American, I feel like it's such a pity that here in America, he's not as well known. I'm sure in England, he's still a figure that a lot of people know about and at least to some extent know his history. So in addition to being such an acclaimed journalist and newspaper editor, he did have this reputation for really being into occultism and spiritualism, which, as you mentioned, was super rampant. You know, it was one of those fads of the day. And so it was just sort of a happy coincidence that I could sort of use this aspect of his past and of his nature to, um, you know, he's sort of the touchstone for all of the supernatural events that occur in the deep. He actually has a seance on board the ship, doesn't he, at one point? It comes in very early. And, and uh, it was a lot of fun writing that. Um, a little tough, right? It's, I think in some respects it's hard to write those types of things without falling into cliché. So hopefully um, readers will find it chilling and terrifying. Caroline surveyed William Stead's cabin. He had transformed his stateroom. Caroline imagined it had started out exactly like hers. A square box, panelled in wood, with a table and four narrow chairs. Cheerless electric sconces on the walls. But here, the lights had been turned off, and a pair of elegant silver candelabra brought in. The long tapers topped with wavering flames. Additional chairs formed a ring around the table, which was now graced with a flowing white tablecloth. The porthole had been unlatched and left slightly ajar. Sounds from the ship drifted in through the open window. Muffled talking and laughter. Somehow, this Mr. Stead had managed to conjure up the right atmosphere. 
Well, Guggenheim had said, the Englishman was a noted occultist. Maybe he kept all the accoutrements with him in a box, like a traveling salesman. Caroline felt a tremor of nerves run through her, despite the powder. Madeline Astor had evidently been able to persuade her friends to join them. Sir Cosmo and Lady Duff Gordon were already seated at the table. Lady Duff Gordon with a puckish smile on her face. She doesn't expect anything to come of this. To her, it's a lark. The Astors were already at the table. John Jacob gave her a nod, but he looked miserable. Caroline couldn't tell if he might be there only to indulge his wife. Madeline was beside him. Her chin jutted proudly. Her face was done up with all the fashionable paints, dark arched brows and pouty reddened lips. Yet the sweet roundness of her face made her look more like a schoolgirl than a society lady. She was so young and pregnant. The swell was evident, even under the skirts of a cleverly designed evening dress. Can I help you take a seat? Guggenheim asked her, shuffling her forward toward the table his hand resting on the small of her back. Occultism is a fad among my friends, he muttered. But I must admit that I find it a bore. He whispered that last part, his warm breath tickling her ear. You don't believe in life after death? It was a true question. Caroline felt herself hope he'd have superior knowledge over the truth. Could we ever escape? He held out her chair. I'm not opposed to the concept, mind you, but no one has proved it to my satisfaction. Yet, anyway. He released a wobbly smoke ring into the air, and a mischievous smile crept over his lips. But if we're trying to find out what was responsible for that little boy's spell earlier, my money would be on sirens. I've always been partial to the idea of them, you know, those sea nymphs who bewitch men with their song until they crash their ships onto the rocks and die. He laughed and shook his head. I'm not sure what such a fascination says about me. It means you're a romantic. That would be the kindest interpretation, Mrs. Fletcher. I'm not sure everyone would agree with you, however. He grinned, and she felt briefly dazzled by the brightness of his teeth. It's quite an unusual approach that you've taken, taking a well-known historical event and then kind of endowing it with a supernatural twist. Did that idea come from somewhere else, or was that entirely from your own imagination? Well... Sadly, probably, well, my imagination, <laughs> you know, again, like I grew up in this weird little town that, um, just to give you an idea, it's a tiny, tiny town in Massachusetts, but it was in the Guinness Book of World Records for a while for having the most cemeteries per, you know, like square mile. And they were all really old and surrounded by iron gates with big padlocks on them. And when you were a young child and you see things like that, it just really spurs your imagination. Plus, I, I was raised Roman Catholic, which I think maybe kind of predisposes you to sort of look for those sort of 
sense not sensational but you know spiritual or otherworldly explanations to these things so you know um it it just followed me through my life it really started with the hunger um you know like a lot of americans i don't know how prevalent it is in other countries but you hear a little bit about the donner party and you don't know enough about it to really know what the story's about so when i dug into the donner party and i saw how many strange things happened during their trek, you know, where they ended up being trapped in the mountains and uh, by snow and, and had to resort to cannibalism. Well, when you see all of the crazy things that happened throughout the whole journey, not just at the end, you can't help but wonder, you know, were they cursed? <laughs> Was something following them? What made them so unlucky? And then it hit me, you know, it's sort of a no-brainer to match up the supernatural with this. And since doing that, I can't help but do that with almost every historical event I look at now. Like I said, I've kind of gotten this little nickname as the queen of disaster, but I spend a lot. Now that's the kind of books that, you know, once you write a book, that's sort of what they expect you to, to keep doing. So I've been looking at a lot of historical disasters, thinking back as on my time, actually working on disaster response. And um, it's sort of a funny pastime to look at past disasters uh, through the lens of, you know, can I make a story out of this? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You referred there to your previous novel, The Hunger, which was based on the Donner Party, which isn't that well known in the United Kingdom, I would say. But um, what you did there and what you've done now is you've taken real life characters, in this case, the Titanic, the super rich like the Astors, the Guggenheims, W.T. Stead, who we've mentioned, and a pair of bare knuckle boxes as well. What is it about characters from real life that lend themselves to appearing in fiction? And do you feel you have a kind of responsibility towards their memory in a way not to distort them too far from the real people? 
You know, that's a question that I probably get asked the most. It's super fascinating. And I do understand there's going to be a, a breadth of positions on what is the writer's responsibility to a real person who is now deceased. So first of all, uh, when I do research for the books, one of the first things I do is try to get a sense of all of the people who were involved in the historic event. For the Donner Party, that was about 100 people. A lot of folks aren't aware that the Wagon Party was actually that big. But for the Titanic, we're talking about roughly 2,300 people. Now, the other factor in all this is, you know, what kind of book do I really write? It's hard to even describe what historical fiction is. But I think for a lot of readers, and for some writers, they imagine it as a very faithful reproduction of a historical event with just sort of a fictional veneer put over it. And that is certainly one type of historical fiction. But that's not what I do. I try to do these reimaginings that use a historical event as sort of the springboard. And really, I'm trying to tell a different story. I'm not necessarily trying to tell exactly what happened to the Donner Party or exactly what happened on the Titanic. So just to give you an example, there was a theme behind the hunger, which was more about that central question. If you were in a similar situation, if you were trapped, you knew you were not getting out of a place for four months or thereabouts, you were surrounded by your family, by people you love, the most important people in the world to you, and you had no food, what would you do to survive? And you know that some people are going to rise to the occasion and be heroic, and some are not. Some are going to eat their neighbor. No, um, <laughs> I mean, that's the short of it. So that's what that book was about. Not necessarily exactly what the people of the Donner Party went through, but to use that to sort of try to tell a different, maybe even say a bigger story. And so that's what I tried to do with The Deep, too, and The Titanic. So one of the things I learned in writing The Hunger was afterwards my editor asked me, she said, you know, there's something very modern about this book. Now, I wrote it during the 2016 presidential campaign and election in the United States. And a lot of people who read early versions of it said, yeah, there's something about the election that's coming through. And I was a little nervous because I didn't want to really project something onto it. So when I look back at the history of what were the key issues and themes going on in America at the time, I just found that some of the things America was going through at the time, actually, we, you know, we were going through close to the same thing. Class striation. I mean, the Donner Party really, I don't want to go too much into the Donner Party here, so apologies on that. But the, the short of it is that I found that what's really interesting about history is that often, you know, it's repeating itself. So I looked at what was going on during the time of the Titanic and the Britannic you know, the end of the Edwardian era. And two of the biggest issues of the day, one were women's rights, because women still did not have the vote. And that has a lot of ramifications on just the bounds of a person's life, what kind of legal representation you have in society. And the other one had to do with the great inequality between the classes, you know, and the disparity in wealth and income. And I don't know how it is in your country, but that's very much 2020 in America right now. So knowing that, again, these were recurring themes, I decided this time up front that I would really try to focus the book on those. So that's what you see in the deep. So then once I knew what the themes were, I actually read little bios on every single person on the Titanic, all the passengers, all the crew, and looked for characters 
that would help me reinforce these two themes in the book. There's some you can't get away. I mean, I could not write a book on the Titanic without talking about the Astors. And the fact that, for instance, J.J. Astor was rumored to be the richest man in America at the time, well, you know, that's going to be a catalyst for the class divide. And the fact that he had just married a woman who was one-third his age, he had divorced his longstanding wife about a year earlier, fallen in love with Madeline um, Talmadge Force, who was 18 years old at the time. They got married. It caused this huge scandal in New York. So they fled to Europe and to Egypt on a grand tour, their honeymoon, to sort of avoid the um, scandal. And we're just coming back to America on the Titanic. Well, you know, that's a perfect character in which to explore women's rights. Um, the position Maddie was in was one way, you know, to sort of be able to describe all this. But then you want to contrast that with other characters. So probably the most controversial decision I made about characters with the deep has, has to do with Violet Jessup. Because when I had mentioned earlier that there was, you know, in the documentary, they said there was one woman who survived both sinkings. Of course, they were talking about Violet Jessup, which all Titanic fans like you know <laughs> her name. For those who don't, she was an actual stewardess on the Titanic and became a nurse on the Britannic, survived both of the sinkings. And so people have asked me, why didn't I just make her the main character? And this is something I sort of learned after The Hunger. And that is, uh, and it gets back to your question about respecting, you know, real life people who went through the events. For the story I wanted to tell for The Deep, especially with all its supernatural aspects, I didn't feel it was right to project all of that onto Violet Jessup, that it would have been just too different from what her life actually was. I think on in The Hunger, where there are fewer fictional characters, almost all the characters in the book are actual real life people, that I ended up maybe projecting a little bit too much that was not quite as close to what I could tell from the research I did about their actual, who they were actually as people at the time. And I regretted that a little bit after The Hunger. So in The Deep, I have more fictional characters especially among the main characters, who were really bearing the brunt of most of the heavy lifting emotionally in the story. Do you find that researching for fiction is different than researching for a non-fiction book? Absolutely. And I'm actually a little controversial about this. Let me explain. So in real life, I spent 35 years in, the, in intelligence and basically as an analyst. And basically what that means is you're a researcher, but you're not a historian. And um, there's a big difference between what researchers do and what historians do. Now, if you talk to a lot of authors of historical fiction, I think they tend to try to do their research like historians, and I do not. So historians have to be extremely exhaustive, right? They're trying to capture history, accurately reflect everything that happened, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's exhaustive, and it should be, because they're producing reference materials for the most part. But fiction is different. In fiction, the story comes first. So you don't necessarily have to do research to the same degree as you would for history. What I find as a researcher is what's more important is to quickly understand what are the key things you need to know about that event, right? And then, importantly, figure out what your scope is for your story up front. I think the main quibble I have with some historical fiction writers is 
they just say, and I've literally seen this, they'll just say, oh, I want to write about World War II, but I don't know what I'm going to write about. I've got to read everything about World War II in order to find my story. I don't agree with that approach. Just like with a research project, the very first thing you do is you define the scope of your research project. So you can put aside all the stuff that you don't really need to know about and just focus on researching the parts that you do. Without this, that's how you end up sometimes coming with up with novels that have just too much like exposition and backstory, just too much facts that end up weighing down a story and kill that forward momentum, the narrative drive that you need to pull a reader through a story. In the deep, you have these two timelines. You have the 1912 story aboard the Titanic and the 1916 story on board the Britannic. How do you set out to plot a novel where there are these multiple voices, multiple time strands, multiple threads to the story? So sometimes I think I just like to make things more complicated for myself than I really need to. But like a lot of writers, I love the frame device. So for instance, in my very first books, the Taker trilogy, they had a lot of history in them, but it had a frame, a present day frame. So you were with the characters in the present day and then they would dip back into history. And it's sort of the same way here, where the Britannic, what's happening during the time of the Britannic, is the frame, and then we go back with the characters to understand what they went through on the Titanic. So in one way, it just helps make for a more compelling narrative. It helps increase the drama in the story, so you've got two storylines going through. But it can be a little tricky from the point of view of actual, like, tradecraft, how you execute the story, a little tricky. But hopefully it ends up, you know, producing a much more interesting story for readers. Do you have a particular technical device that you use? Like, do you map it out on a spreadsheet or in various documents to have these parallel stories? You know where you are and in what order events should happen in the story. I'm glad you said spreadsheet because that's exactly what I use. I don't do anything on paper anymore. Everything is a spreadsheet. So for instance, for this book, I had one spreadsheet that was timelines. I had the timeline of every day of the Britannics, really from when it was launched to when it sank, break down generally the other voyages but the day the voyage six and especially the day of the sinking it might even go by the minute same thing with the titanic it actually was minute by minute timeline of um, the sinking of the titanic for everything you know you have to keep notes of the reference where you got this particular you know what the source material was so i just find spreadsheets are a much handier way to do that but that really terrifies some writers who hate to use spreadsheets for me, maybe it's because I'm lazy. I don't like to rewrite things. If you do everything on paper and then you've got to go back and add some notes or change things, it's just so so much less efficient. But yeah, I do all my plotting on spreadsheets and then that makes it easier when you're doing rewrites, you know, to copy and paste and just move blocks around on a spreadsheet as opposed to rewriting and sort of getting lost in the paper. When you take a subject like the Titanic where there's so much literature and you're trying to research that subject with a view to turning it into a fiction. Do you have to limit yourself to the number of sources that you read or do you try and read everything that there is? So this is one of those points that I probably disagree with a lot of um, historical fiction writers. And that is, I, I don't believe it's actually good to read everything you can get your hands on. 
because I scope my stories in advance, like I knew generally, you know, I was going to kind of go to those two themes, you know, class disparity and, and women's suffrage, that I could then limit what resources I actually needed to look at. I would try to figure out what am I going to need to know to write the story that I'm most lacking in. And then I, this is what really kills some people. I limit myself to two sort of foundational research books. I find the best two books for the types of things I need to know. And I spend only about two weeks. I'm very fast because I've been doing this for 35 years. <laughs> I mean, I've run a research laboratory for the Defense Department. So I've got my research skills pretty well honed. So I'll spend two weeks with those two primary sources. And I will pull everything I need out of them, populate many, many spreadsheets. Um, and then I start outlining the story. But I do a lot of spot research as I write in order to fill in all those little gaps that I, that, you know, questions will just come up. You'll be writing a scene. Every book I write, what they eat for breakfast always comes up. What did they eat for breakfast during that time? And so you've got to run off and, you know, research that sort of thing. So I'm never in the position, which some writers find themselves in, where they have all this research and they feel honor bound to stuff it in their story somehow. And then you end up getting this kind of flabby, overloaded story. I mean, I know some readers really love that. They probably won't like my books then. But I, I try to keep it a little bit more, keep the historical fact a little tighter to the story. You've mentioned that you worked in intelligence for many decades. Why the switch then to writing fiction? You know, I dreamed of becoming a writer and I wanted to write novels, but I really had no idea how to do it. And I'm very old. So this was before the internet and it was hard to learn about things like this, right? Like I didn't know any writers. I didn't even know how you would get to meet any novelists. So I just sort of put it aside as something I'd never be able to do. I was a newspaper reporter for a while, even when I was in high school. You know, that was the one job I could see where you could make money writing. So I started out as a newspaper reporter. But then, you know, when you're young, everyone says, you can't be a novelist unless you have something to write about. You don't have any life experiences. So I had the opportunity to apply to the National Security Agency. They had this crazy, crazy entrance process where you had to take this battery of crazy tests and there was just a lot of rumor circulating about around it and I thought well that's an experience never dreaming that I would get a job well they offered me a job and I thought well if I take that job that's an experience and I'll have to move from Boston to Washington and you know I could just see my life opening up but I told them you know, I'll only stay for a couple years, maybe five at the most, and then I'll quit. And they were like, oh, sure, sure. 35 years later, I had this career. Well, at about 40, something happened to me that I, I found since happens to a lot of people. You have some kind of weird life-changing experience at 40. And for me, I got very sick. It was a neurological illness, and there was a question as to whether or not I'd even be able to go back to work. And so during that time, I started writing fiction again just to try to take my mind off of things. And I was terrible. You know, after 15 years of not writing fiction, it was terrible. But I enjoyed it so much, and it reminded me of what I wanted to do. I said to myself, if I can recover, I'm going to take this seriously, and I'm going to try to learn to really write a novel. And without any hope of being published, because I just figured the odds were too bad. And I did recover, and I spent 10 years <laughs> writing my first book. 
working really hard at it, but 10 years to get it in a saleable state. And then I sold it. And, and since then, I've been working really hard to keep my publishing career afloat. <laughs> Have you been tempted to turn your experience as an intelligence analyst into fiction as well? Constantly. <laughs> so from the beginning, once I started meeting editors and agents, they all said, with your background, you really should write a spy novel. And I took them at their word and I tried and they were terrible. And I learned that that advice to write what you know is not always quite correct because they would all say to me, well, with you, with your knowledge, you could write, you know, you could tell us what it's really like. So that's what I did. And they all told me it was too boring. <laughs> so I put it aside. And then a couple years ago, I was talking to my editor at my current publisher and she was telling me how much she loved The Americans, that TV show. It was about to go into its final season. And she said, you know, if somebody could write me a story like that, that had not only the espionage side, but also showed, you know, like on that personal level, especially domestically, what is it like inside a family to have to deal with those kinds of tensions and, and troubles? And I said, I can do that. And it took us a year, but I did come up with the plot and it's going to be published next spring. Its title right now is Red Widow. And I really hope my readers find it because I have to say, so far, all of the advanced readings on it have just been through the roof. It's extremely twisty, twisty spy novel, and I'm super proud of it. So you've mentioned Red Widow, but is there another historical event that's been playing on your mind that you think could be the basis for another novel? Well, I actually am about to sign a contract for the next book, which is going to be based in World War II. I don't want to give too much away, but it is super interesting, and it's something that I actually have a personal interest in. Not that I was alive during World War II, but once I can announce all this, it'll, it'll be plain. And then it's a two-book deal, and I'm pretty sure the book after that is probably going to deal with Chernobyl, which is pretty fascinating, yeah. But all the time, you know, I'm constantly doing research, trying to find some historical event. Oh, we'll call it a disaster. That would lend itself, you know, well to this type of thing. Like, I'd love to do the Salem Witch Trials, but, you know, it's not just what an author wants to write goes into what a book is, but also what a publisher thinks will sell. So right now, their feeling is that that's maybe a little overdone. We've also talked about uh, The Lost Colony of Roanoke, which may be a little too obscure for most people. And, and that happened in the 1600s. So it's a little difficult time frame sometimes to deal with. People have brought up the Hindenburg. This is going to sound terrible, but it wasn't a big enough disaster. I think about 30 people died in it. That's not a good metric for deciding what you're going to write about. But the the fact is, is that disaster actually did not change like aviation history. They still used dirigibles for a while, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you're kind of looking for the perfect storm of not only the event itself, but what was the ultimate impact, you know, on society and history. So more than a century has now passed since the sinking of the Titanic and the Britannic. Why do you think the story of the Titanic in particular still exerts such a hold on our interest and imagination? You know, I'll go back to that expression, the perfect storm. I think it just has a lot of things that really sort of hook people's imagination. It certainly was a large disaster. I mean, at the time, it was 
I don't I can't remember if it was the largest maritime disaster. It certainly stands as one of the largest maritime disasters. And again, you're speaking to the disaster queen. So like I can rattle off the top 10 <laughs> historic disasters, you know, we're, in which case you're talking about tens of thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of people dying. It's certainly, it's very large though for a maritime disaster. But then it has all the other trappings, you know, all of the glamorous people who were aboard. There were so many of them. You know, I just highlight a few, but so many more. That was one of the fascinating things after reading all those little thumbnail biographies. I swear every single person on that ship was fascinating in their own way. You could almost write a book about each and every one of those people. But even if you just look at first class, there were just so many interesting people with interesting lives. Then there was the era itself. It was such a glamorous, you know, sparkling spectacle of a, a historic period that I think that, you know, hooks in a lot of people's minds. And so many things hinged on it. You know, World War One was just happening. We were about to see life change, you know, for Western society irrevocably. Just so many things came together right at that event. Alma Katsu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Historical Fiction Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.